This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Some are calling it the most important development in international relations in years. It's the latest effort to counter China's aggression on the world stage. So the U.S. made a deal with the United Kingdom and Australia that would assist Australia with nuclear-powered submarines. The pact is referred to as AUKUS, and that's after each of the three countries, and it left out Canada And it has enraged France because Australia backed out of a major $66 billion deal for more conventional French submarines. The French were so mad about the deal, they recalled their ambassador to the U.S. Now, for here, for Canadians, the big concern is, does that mean Canada will be left out of intelligence sharing among the allies? We're part of that Five Eyes alliance, but there's already worry because we have not said no to Huawei and uh, there are other countries. We are the only one of the Five Eyes that has not said no to Huawei. Uh, And uh, the question is, is that going to be costing us? It is costing us, is it? costing us already. Let me give the numbers out again. Uh, what do you think? Uh, is is it good that Canada is kind of goes easy on China with our two hostages, or, or should we be doing something more robust? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And now let's go to Dr. Kim Richard Nossel, who is Professor Emeritus in the Department of Political Studies and Center for International and Defense Policy at Queen's University, Dr. Paul Evans, Professor at the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs at the University of British Columbia, and Jonathan Berkshire Miller, who is a senior fellow with the Japan Institute of International Affairs and at the Indo-Pacific Program at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Everyone, thank you so much for joining us. Hi. Good to be here, Libby. Okay, let's begin with uh, Paul Evans. So uh, what do you make of this pact? Is it just something to enable these nuclear submarines, or is this basically a cutting out of other uh, certain other allies? Uh, I don't think this pact is a game changer. It's not the, the most dramatic event, but it is uh, part of a move by Australia, the United States, and some others to both signal uh, increasing concerns about uh, uh, what might be the security risks from China in future, and that they are willing to uh, break some previous kinds of taboos by the transfer of particular technologies. And it is it, it is significant because it is bigger than simply a submarine deal. There is technology, there is intelligence sharing as part of it. And uh, how countries that are not part of that and who probably, like Canada, don't wish to be part of it uh, as currently formed is going to cause some uh, some uh, 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 some waves. Uh, in, a, in, a, in many capitals right now. Uh, Dr. Nossel, what do you think? I, I, I very much agree with, uh, uh, with Paul that, that what, we, what we don't see here is a major shift. And, and for Canadians, we need to put in perspective the fact that this is actually a, a very limited uh, group of countries. Uh, keep in mind, the United States has a range of allies uh, in the Asia-Pacific, or the Indo-Pacific, as the Americans now uh, and others like to call it. Um, and none of them are, uh, uh, are part of this pact. Uh, you know, we really have to go back to the origins of AUKUS, uh, which lie in the, the, uh, the increasing problems that the Australians were having uh, getting a new fleet of submarines. 
Uh, and it was uh, those problems that led the Australians essentially to approach first the British and then the Americans with the idea of a new submarine fleet, a nuclear-powered submarine fleet. From there, AUKUS developed. And, and so that I, I don't really think that we should see uh, Canada uh, and other American allies in the Asia-Pacific as having been excluded. Jonathan Berkshire Miller, do you do you agree? Um, do you agree? Yeah, thanks. I would agree with uh, much of what my colleagues said. I think um, you know, first of all, the context of, of uh, the French and how they approached this original deal, and clearly, um, month over month, this was not meeting the Australian needs. And I think some of this was signaled publicly and and uh, quite a bit privately uh, over the past several months. Uh, so this is not a surprise. I think specific to this deal. Um, also, I think it's important to contextualize that this is one part of a very large jigsaw puzzle of arrangements um, and uh, alliances in the Indo-Pacific region that are meant to deal with a new challenge. And that challenge predominantly uh, is the rise of China. So it's just one element. I don't think it's meant to necessarily replace uh, other, instit- um, other sort of instruments, including the Five Eyes. Um, I think, as my uh, fellow panelists uh, mentioned, uh, that the Five Eyes is a very technical uh, intelligence-sharing alliance, and I think Canada's going to remain in that. That being said, I think that it is important, and it's an important wake-up call, in, in particular uh, on Australia, and to see how Australia really is changing its own threat perceptions and how it's going to be approaching this region going forward. And I think that's a reminder for Canada, which faces uh, similar challenges, and I think it's going to have to take a very realistic approach on how it engages in the Indo-Pacific in the coming months. Okay, is that uh, sort of a polite way of saying that we are going to have to get tougher with uh, China, Dr. Evans? You know, um, uh, we're the only one of the five eyes that hasn't said no to Huawei technology, and uh, a lot of the others are worried about that. Um, I uh, Well, I don't think we've... All of the other five eyes have a complete ban of Huawei. They've uh, kept them out of the 5G systems, but... Uh, the, the the Huawei issue and how we deal with Chinese technology uh, in future is not a on-off switch. And I think the liberals have both been afraid of jeopardizing the complex negotiations around the uh, uh, our two Michaels, but also have been a little hesitant about decoupling from Chinese technology uh, in the main. But the the question of how we position and with whom uh, in pushing back on China where necessary, and we've certainly done some of that, um, but also then avoiding a kind of zero-sum uh, alliance versus China uh, deal. I think that's where Ottawa is, and I, I, if we had a different outcome yet in our election two days ago, uh, we might be looking at an era where Canada would be looking at uh, joining with allies and uh, Anglosphere friends in pushing back against China. But I think we are probably going to be in for a period of a more nuanced response. Push back sometimes, cooperate when we can. Jonathan Berkshire Miller, I mean, should we be pushing back more? Well, I think it's going to require a bit of both. Um, and I think one of the interesting developments of this, I mean, a lot of the attention obviously is focused on the Australians and in particular in this deal. But there's others in the region that I think will be looking at this, um, whether it's uh, those in South Korea. The South Korean side has been thinking about nuclear-powered subs for, for, for quite some time. Uh, and despite its need to work with China, is also deeply concerned about the, the future uh, in the region as well. Uh, so I think there's going to be other U.S. allies that are looking at this deal and potentially seeing it as a threshold breaker. Uh, for the Canadian side, I think, uh, you know, we're going to have to work in a lot of different um, ways. I think uh, we're not going to look at one sort of arrangement and see this as necessarily um, a move to contain China. I think, as Paul mentioned correctly, we need to cooperate with China when it's uh, in our interest, and we need to uh, mitigate the risks uh, that China presents when it's also in our interest. So I think it's going to take a, a nuanced approach, uh, but I think that we have to look at this very realistically. And I think that's the challenge that Ottawa has struggled with in the past several years is there really hasn't been a realistic uh, assessment of some of the challenges, uh, not just from China, but more broadly in this region. Um, and I think that that sort of pragmatic assessment needs to uh, needs to happen. Uh, Dr. Nossel, um, what is a timeline for delivery of these submarines? 
Well, that's, I mean, that's part of the uh, strange, and and uh, for some Australians, they've called it basically a crazy decision, um, because uh, these, uh, uh, these submarines aren't going to appear uh, in Australian ports uh, until the 2040s. Uh, we're talking about a 20-year a, a timeline. Uh, the, the French submarines were uh, not going to appear until the 2030s, uh, uh, meaning that the Australians were going to have to depend upon their, uh, their existing submarine fleets, which is uh, six uh, Collins-class submarines, until uh, the late 20s, early uh, uh, 2030s. And so that, that essentially what we're talking about here is a huge and long timeline. Uh, and, uh, you know, as, as your listeners will uh, uh, absolutely uh, uh, appreciate, think of what can happen between now and 2040 in terms of, of the, the broader geostrategic environment. Uh, and so from, from that point of view, the, the Australian decision to go with uh, a nuclear-powered uh, fleet that's not going to make its uh, appearance for another 20 years uh, is something that, that uh, uh, we need to always to keep in mind. Okay, I, I, I want to get more into that because of some of the threats that people see. We've got to take a break. And I want to give the numbers out again to hear from people. Uh, you know, is Canada on the right track, the way we deal with China. We still have the two Michaels. They've been there over a thousand days. Uh, we seem to be walking on eggshells. Should we be taking a tougher stand? Or uh, what our panel is saying is that it's nuanced. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And we will be back with more on this. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about that deal among the U.S., the U.K., and Australia for nuclear-powered submarines to face the increasingly aggressive behavior from China. Um, the question is, uh, is that a slap in the face to Canada? Does it mean that we will not get to share some of the intelligence that we now share? What does it mean for us? Uh, we've just learned, and it was news to me, I have to say that there's a 20-year timeline for the delivery of these nuclear-powered submarines. And, uh, you know, what about things that are on the horizon? One of the things that we keep hearing about as a danger is, you know, is, is China going to invade Taiwan? They think it is their territory. And there doesn't seem to be a guarantee that the U.S. would step in on that. Uh, Dr. Evans. <laughs> well, there's, there's, there's so many areas of concern in the Asia-Pacific or Indo-Pacific region uh, that, uh, that are alarming. Uh, assertive Chinese behavior uh, in the South China Sea, pressure on the Taiwan matter. But I don't think we're on the edge of a major conflict in the region. Uh, Build-up of forces on both sides. But the, there is still an interest even in this time of pretty pretty heated U.S.-China interactions. That is the big play in the background. But even as that is hot, there has been um, uh, pretty, pretty well-managed uh, uh, activities, uh, uh, diplomatic and others, to, uh, to try to keep the lid on things. And now I think we see some efforts to put in kind of guardrails in the U.S.-China uh, relationship that might make those conflicts regarding Taiwan or uh, incidents in the South China Sea, uh, there's still a real possibility, but they are not a strong probability. Uh, you mentioned guardrails. Uh, last week, we learned that during the Trump administration, uh, General Milley contacted his Chinese counterparts because he was uh, he was worried about what Trump might do. Is, is that... Um, a start to those guardrails that you were referring to? Uh, I think so. I mean, it's at least part of the same uh, uh, general approach that 
U.S. and China relationship is so important and so difficult that there need to be multiple layers of communication. Those broke down during uh, the Trump administration about the the Biden people, even in a in a context of strong negative things being said about each other, are trying to find ways for those levels of of contact and exchange that make unnecessary, unwarranted, unexpected uh, military exchanges um, uh, pretty unlikely at this point. Okay, I'm going to take a couple of calls. Pat in Toronto. Hi, Pat. Good afternoon. Uh, We shouldn't be talking about nuclear submarines. We haven't got the money nor the expertise. Uh, And the reality is 90% of us live within 100 miles of the U.S. border. So we have to depend on the U.S. But, you know, the really sad part is that the two Michaels are not being viewed as important as the trade we have with China. And that is the sad part. I mean, we could put uh, all sorts of restrictions because we probably buy a lot more from China than they buy from us. But that's not considered to be worth it. Um, Rather, we just let the two Michaels sit in jail. It's not fair. Uh, Yeah. Pat, thanks for your call. Uh, Let's hear what Sita has to say. Hi, Sita. Hi, everyone. How are you? Fine. Go ahead. Yes. Um, This will affect Canada. Freeing the Michael will be part of it. Canada has lost their chance to stand up to China by not being included with the other three country deal. This is the start of how serious allies will take Canada. If Huawei is about technology and information, and we are not saying no to them, why would other countries want to trust us with information and, and intel? Okay, Sita, I am Thank going you. to let our panelists answer that. Who would like to take that? Well, if I can go uh, quickly. Um, I think it's important to, to think about, uh, as I mentioned before, you know, the, this trilateral deal is important. Um, and I think it's significant in many ways, but it's not necessarily the only way that we can uh, push back against China, but also secure our interests in this region. But I think one thing that is important, uh, in addition to sort of our Five Eyes relationship and some of our other partnerships, is that this should be seen, as I said, as a wake-up call. And one of the things that I think we really need to um, uh, have some urgency on is a strategy, a really robust strategy for engaging in this region that includes China, but is not uh, 100% focused on China. And that, I think, is where an Indo-Pacific strategy comes in. So rather than focusing this about how we can work with one or two countries to you know, contain China or deal with the problems of China, how do we engage with this region more broadly? And, and some of those challenges, a lot of those challenges are the rise of China. But I think that, to me, is, is really the urgency that something like this uh, um, shows. Anyone else? But as the, but as the first uh, caller so correctly said, what we're talking about here uh, is the uh, need to spend far greater sums of money, not just simply on defense, but, but on uh, diplomacy, uh, and uh, looking across the Pacific in a way that, that uh, Canadians, uh, we, we uh, talk a big game, but, but when it comes time to actually spending the money that uh, one needs to, to uh, engage across uh, uh, our other ocean, um, we, generally speaking, uh, aren't sim- are just simply aren't prepared to pay for it. Uh, yeah, or we don't have the money to pay for it. We can. <laughs> oh no, no, no! Uh, uh, look, we are we are an incredibly rich country. Um, we could, if we wanted to, we could spend like Australians spend on defense. Um, we choose not to, um, in large measure, because as the uh, uh, as your first caller correctly pointed out, we we are tightly uh, uh, stuck in North America with the Americans. We know we don't necessarily have to spend like Australians spend on defense. Okay. Uh, Jonathan Berkshire Miller, I mean, is uh, it, are we good to just keep doing what we're doing? Yeah, I would agree with, uh, with Kim on this, that, um, you know, the idea, and you hear this argument often, that there's just not the resources uh, to do a, a pivot or a tilt to the region. I don't think, really think that's true. I think everything comes with costs in foreign policy and security. I mean, there, it, clearly there are finite resources, and we might not have the budget of the United States or China or Japan, uh, 
Uh, but there are definitely targeted things that we can do. And I think we're going to have to make tough choices, frankly. Um, we have interests and stakes in Europe, obviously, and we're not going to abandon those or, or, uh, or dial back uh, significantly in NATO and other areas. Uh, but we really need to have a long, hard and long-term thought about uh, where we deploy those resources. And my second point would be that it doesn't all have to be on the backs of the Royal Canadian Navy or the Defence Department, but I think this is something diplomatically, uh, people to people, in many ways, we need to really think about how we uh, deploy those resources into what regions of the world we do. We we have a few minutes left. Let's talk about the two Michaels. Uh, the Meng Wanzhou case seems to be winding to a conclusion. Uh, Paul Evans, do you have predictions about what's going to happen? Um, I think you're exactly right to frame this as not just two Michaels, but also among Canada has a three M's challenge in front of us. <clears throat> and we're not going to be able to unravel any part of that without the uh, uh, the other pieces on the table, too. This is ultimately not a rule of law question, but a political question and a, a matter of statecraft. Uh, but the um, uh, at the moment, um, there is uh, some hope that the negotiations between the Department of Justice and Huawei about <clears throat> settling this one before extradition might be uh, uh, carried out. There are some, there, there are some promising developments there, and I think we're at a, at a moment where the difference between the two sides is reduced. We're not there, and there's no solution immediately, but until we get the 3M's problem handled, it's, it's very difficult for Canadians to accept the kind of nuanced China policy that, that some of us advocate. This is a, uh, it's not just a thorn in the side and a major storm, but it's really changing, the, uh, m- moving us into a new season in our China relations that will make some tougher action necessary. Uh, Kim, no, also one of, one of the things that I've been told by China watchers is that even if Meng is uh, let go and sent home as a matter of face, they wouldn't immediately re- release the two Michaels. So, you know, how does it end? Well, I, I think that uh, Canadians have to prepare for the possibility uh, that uh, the People's Republic of China uh, is exceedingly uh, annoyed at uh, Canadian participation in what is regarded in China uh, as an attack on Huawei, uh, and thus an attack on China. Uh, and so that uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, entirely confident that um, the government in Beijing would uh, respond to a return of Ms. Meng uh, to China uh, by simply sending, by expelling um, the, uh, uh, the, the two Michaels. There's I think uh, uh, there are other possibilities um, for the Chinese uh, to want to just make the point about what what happens to countries um, that uh, that challenge uh, the uh, uh, that, uh, that challenge China. Jonathan Berkshire Miller, last word to you. Yeah, well, I would agree, and I mean, I would say China has already made that point quite clear, uh, not only to the Canadians but uh, to some of our other friends in Australia, Japan, and Europe who. Similarly, had challenges with their citizens, uh, but I, I, you know, I sadly think this is the, it's true. As much as I empathize with both the Michael situation, that this is not going to be a quick tit for tat. Where um, if we do see a resolution in this month's case, uh, that the Michaels will be back on a plane instantly. I think China has an interest uh, to ensure, and they always like to say that these cases are not interlinked, even though most of us, uh, all of us on this call, and most of us listening, know that they very much are linked. Um, so they're going to have an interest to say uh, maybe it's three, four, five months later um, that um, they've provided clemency or pardoned uh, the two Michaels. But I don't think this is going to be a direct uh, situation. Okay, that is all the time we have. Thank you, Jonathan Berkshire Miller, uh, Dr. Kim Nossel, and Dr. Paul Evans. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having us on. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. 
The election is over, and one of the three defeated cabinet ministers, all women, by the way, is the Minister for Seniors, Deb Schultz, or former Minister for Seniors, Deb Schultz. She was just the second full minister for seniors named by the Liberals. So should we just assume that they will name another? And is it effective? Does that minister and that ministry have any clout at the table? Long-term care and health are provincial responsibilities, but the carnage from COVID has advocates, stakeholders, and family members clamoring for national standards, and there is a process in place. One of our panelists today is involved with it, but we've also seen through this election the total reluctance to do anything that will annoy Quebec, and that would be imposing a national standard. So, what does it mean? I'd like to hear from you. 416 360 toll free 1 866 740 And now I'm joined by NDP MPP for Nickel Belt and health critic Frangelina Jane Meadis, staff lawyer and the institutional advocate at the Advocacy Center for the Elderly and Dr. Tamara Daly, a York University professor and the director of the university's Center for Aging Research and Education. Thank you all for joining us. Hello. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Let us begin with France. Uh, Do you have confidence that the seniors file uh, will uh, maintain the kind of priority it had in the Liberal government? or maybe you think that it didn't have much priority in the Liberal government. How do you see this? Well, I would say that I'm worried. Uh, seniors, um, important seniors affair, very, very seldom make it to the top of the priority pile. And, I mean, you've talked about what we've all witnessed during the pandemic uh, with the great majority of people dying were seniors. We are way off the charts compared to other developed countries in how poorly we did to protect our seniors, and many of them were in long-term care and in other congregate living. So for once, senior care made the top of the priority for every Ontarian. We all know we owe it to them to do better and it also hit the top of the pile for the priority pile for for the federal uh and canadian for a while uh but it is hard to keep it there uh seniors are easy to forget they are easy to put behind i don't want it to be forgotten but i'm a bit worried yes dr daly how do you see that uh, I would agree. I've always been worried about long-term care, to be honest. I think uh, long-term care in particular and seniors' care more broadly um, seems to be stuck in, in what we might call a vicious policy cycle. And in part, that's because um, different levels of government have responsibility for it. It's also a highly um, commoditized space. So there's a lot of um, different players and different stakeholders that have uh, different levels of interest, including material interest or like um, large amounts of money that can be made. And uh, there's there's frequently a lack of attention uh, paid to this space because we are generally thinking about care for those toward the end of their lives. And it's something that um, Canadians have often thought that this is a personal or a private household responsibility, as opposed to seeing the ways in which we need to think about how we're all in this together um, and that we owe and uh, we owe something to each other uh, to care for each other at the end of our lives. So this kind of wicked policy space or this vicious circle that we've been in, um, it looked as though um, one of the only good things that may have come out of COVID was this increased public attention on long-term care um, and uh, care for seniors. And I'm just worried uh, that uh, as we solve some of the problems uh, of COVID in particular, that we'll forget about the problems that already existed uh, for seniors' care in this country. Jane Medes, now you are on that federally convened committee, and I know that you can't speak to the standards that are being developed, but uh, 
do you have confidence that that when your work is done, it's it's not just going to end up gathering dust like so many other reports that we love to do here in Canada? Sure, and and I agree that that's you know often what happens is that these reports do end up on the shelf. The difference here is that these are going to be standards that will be uh, or guidelines that could be developed by to, into standards by Accreditation Canada. And, you know, many provinces already use those standards. So it's something that actually has a potential of being utilized because it is meant to be, um, you know, used as opposed to just a policy report. So it's different. Um, and again, it, you know, with the, you know, as mentioned, you know, we've got this sort of national, uh, provincial, municipal, you know, all sorts of different government levels. So it really is going to be, it remain to be seen, you know, who, who takes up these accreditation, you know, who will follow them, who won't. And that will be the big thing. But certainly there, you know, many provinces do use them already. And so we would be hopeful that that would continue. Well, if, if, if provinces use them already and they're so great, you know, uh, how do you explain the, the way things turned out? Well, I think the whole thing is, is that, that this is a, an entire revamping of those standards. Um, and so what is, is there now um, is going to change. Uh, very significantly. Um, and so, you know, right now we're, you know, looking at the standards, but, um, you know, the public can even still have input into this. Um, there, there are, um, town halls that are going to be taking place shortly. So, you know, whether you're family member, resident, caregiver, what have you, you can still have your say. And I think that, that what we're looking at in the standards certainly will be vastly different than what is there today. France, uh, what we saw in the election campaign is uh, both the Prime Minister and uh, the leader of the Conservative Party, who had a shot at it, uh, you know, falling all over themselves not to do anything to annoy Quebec, which, of course, uh, would would be very, very upset if any kind of national anything was imposed. Uh, the, the Premier of Ontario has said the same thing about national standards. Uh, I'm assuming that uh, it might be much the same in Alberta and Saskatchewan. You know, I, do you see any hope at all of getting national standards? Uh, I will say that I do. I mean, uh, what uh, Mrs. Matus just talked about, using uh, Accreditation Canada, uh, many long-term care homes are accredited, and they will need to meet those new uh, criteria is great. Uh, but the federal government talks with their dollars. I mean, as much as healthcare is a provincial jurisdiction, I fully agree, uh, we do get about 20% of our budget comes from the feds right now, and they set the rules. Uh, they set rules such as it needs to be uh, delivered by a not-for-profit. It needs to be available to all. You cannot charge. And province have always follow those rules that were set by the federal government. So I could see a day where the federal government invests money into um, senior care, into long-term care, and that comes with a set of rules that every province will have to follow that do not have to be that far away from the rules we already follow for Medicare. Uh- it's it's interesting that you say that again, you know, when I when I've heard talk of those things, one of the pushback things we hear from uh Francois Legault in Quebec among others is yes, we need more money for health care, but it should not be tied. It should not be earmarked, Dr. Daly. Well, I I think that one of the challenges uh, here is that various provinces do things very differently. And if we even look at Ontario, um, a number of years ago, at least 15 to 20 years ago, what they did is they moved the long-term care funding that comes from the public, comes from the provincial government. They earmarked that um, and sort of separated it out from the principles that come with the Canada Health Act. And so um, the Canada Health Act comes with federal dollars. And as a result, we've kind of seen some shifts in in, um, the way in which uh, governments themselves are are acting when it comes to this uh, this sector, and I think that one of the things uh, that we would like to see um, more of is this federal spending power accompanied with a set of principles that 
um, keep the provincial governments and make the provincial governments adhere to things that uh, Canadians collectively value. So whether or not it's in terms of the way in which uh, organizations are funded or um, what their level of public accountability is in terms of the way that they have to report on data, um, whatever it is, I'd like to see more accountability. And part of that um, could come with the federal government earmarking specific dollars towards seniors' care. Um, these kinds of things, like standards are great if we're talking about the organizational level. But I think what we need is we need our governments to be held to account for the way in which they're caring for seniors. And that requires principles, and it needs to be values-driven, and it needs to be clear who is accountable uh, for seniors um, at the end of their lives. Hmm. Let me give the numbers out again. I would like to hear from people if you have loved ones if in long-term care. Maybe you yourself are in long-term care. Um, the number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And um, I, I also just want to throw in a question about home care. You know, given what happened, there are so many people who are th- say, you know, at this point, I would do anything to stay out of long-term care. Uh, the home care system is woefully underfunded. Recently, the parliamentary budget officer put a figure of $5.2 billion a year just to get home care up to standards in other countries. Um, that does not seem to be on anyone's agenda. France? Oh, absolutely. I would say rarely a day goes by that I do not have a complaint against home care. I get them all the time. The most of the complaint, the worker did not show up, and I ended up sleeping in my wheelchair because nobody helped me back into bed or nobody helped me out of my bed into my wheelchair in the morning and I spend the day in bed and et cetera, et cetera. Not a day goes by that I don't have a complaint against home care. The um, and more and more people would like to have home care and would like to stay home. Uh, but right now, I would say home care fails more people than it helps every single day. I'll give you an example. I'm from northern Ontario. Home care throughout Ontario uses the same evaluation scale. So let's say you score an 18. If you score an 18 in Ottawa, you will have two visits one in the morning, one at night, and your caregiver will have two, three hours respite to go to the doctor, go grocery shopping, whatever. If you have the same level of care where I live, you get two baths a week. That's all, that's it, because there is not enough money to meet the needs of the people uh, that I serve. So although those two people have the same level of needs, they will get more services depending on where they live in Ontario, and, and that's not right. Uh, care should be based on needs, not on how much money happens to be in the areas of the province where you live. Yeah, and in that same uh, parliamentary budget office report, the number, the annual number that he said was needed for long-term care was 13, thir- more than $13 billion a year. Um, Jane? So it's... So we, we all see the math. It is cheaper to keep people at home. It is what people want to do. They want to stay at home. Why don't we bolster up our home care system so that we meet the needs of the people in a respectful way so that they stay home where they want to be and where it is cheaper for the taxpayer at the end of the day? Uh, isn't that a win-win? Uh, Dr. Daly, why don't we? Well, I think uh, my question is always cheaper for whom. So one of the things that we do know is that when people get insufficient supports, that they often then um, rely to a greater extent on like family and friends. And caregiver burnout is a reality in this country. And we also know that um, when that happens, we're putting um, more people at risk. So I I think that you can't, you have to think at a system level when it comes to supports for seniors and those who require um, this type of care in in their lives. You have to think about uh, being able to provide high quality care in homes and 
uh, excellent and dignified care in long-term care residential facilities uh, for those people that need it and those families that require it. I, I just don't think that that only thinking about home care actually gets us anywhere. I think what we should be focusing on is the ways in which we can make sure that these systems best meet people's needs um, and, and also not make those who uh, need long-term care feel uh, guilt or unsupported or um, uh, unable to access it. Because we also know in this province, we have about 38,000 people who've been assessed as needing long-term care and wanting long-term care, and they can't necessarily get into long-term care. So I I think that it's important to think about this as a system. Okay. Uh, Flanche, I know that you have to leave us a little early. Is there anything else you want to leave us with before uh, you go? Uh, I I will be able to stay a little bit longer. (laughs) And uh, I fully agree with uh, uh, what Dr. Daly just said. Uh, We have to look at a continuum of care for uh, elder care. Uh, Getting older is not a disease. It's a phase of life. And if you happen to need support uh, to be able to stay in your own own home, then the support should be there. And... uh, and when it comes time where you cannot be cared for at home, then we should have different models of long-term care, like what exists in other parts of the world, where you're able to move into a home with five, six, or eight, uh, eight people rather than 128 or 400, and stay in a home that looks like a home, feels like a home, and smells like a home, uh, but has 24 uh, seven care, just like we do in, in long-term care. We don't need to go from, you know, like you're at home completely independent to you go into a long-term care home. There are many other models that exist uh, that people like, and that could be implemented in Ontario. Um, and again, we need a little bit of political will to get us there. Uh- Jane Medes, I'd like to turn to another subject now. And so today we are seeing the first day of vaccine passports. So you have to be vaccinated to go to a restaurant or to go to a gym. But still, there is no provincial requirement for somebody who works in long-term care to be vaccinated. What do you make of that? Well, I think that, you know, that the the evidence is very clear on the vaccines. And I think that the government really is going to have to step on the, up on this. I was just um, looking at some stats from somewhere last night and, uh, you know, talk, looking at the number of long-term care homes, um, which presently have um, that of uh, outbreaks um, across Ten. Canada. And I mean, Alberta has really just gone sky high, of course, but Ontario certainly has more than it has in the past. And this is a population where the residents themselves are very highly, you know, vaccinated up to, you know, 97% or something like that. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's being brought in. And I think that we just have to realize that, uh, you know, we, we need all workers in homes and people who are going into homes to be vaccinated because otherwise they are going to infect people and even vaccinated, you know, you can still catch it. And um, unfortunately, you know, with seniors, they're more likely, um, you know, most vaccinated people will probably do okay, but seniors may not. And, and we have to stop that. It just, it, it's irresponsible not to do so. Uh, You know, uh, I hate to say this, but the fact that this still exists makes me very pessimistic because I know that at the height of the first wave, people were really concerned. But I mean, honestly, the fact that this is allowed to continue to go on sort of tells me that, you know, it's not at the top of anybody's agenda because how could this possibly still be happening? And I think it's also very interesting that, you know, what we're seeing now is the it's actually the the facilities and the operators themselves that are um, moving. Um, so some of the large operators certainly have gone to requiring vaccines. And now we see a coalition of some of the not-for-profits um, uh, going ahead with um, uh, the same sort of thing. But again, I think that the government really has to take um, take this and, and, and make it um, mandatory. 
Oh, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is where political leadership is needed. Uh, we've seen what happened with the colleges. The 22 colleges in, in, in Ontario had to work together to say everybody will need to be vaccinated. And they pleaded with the province to mandate it. The province never did it. There's a lack of, of political leadership in Ontario. The, the colleges did it on their own. All their staff, all their students, everybody that goes on campus needs to be vaccinated. The same thing is happening within the, our healthcare system and our long-term care system, where it is the owners, the operators that needs to come forward. It would be so much better if it came from the province, applied province-wide and be clear for everybody rather than leaving every provider, every home to explain to the visitors, to the caregivers that this will be their policy. We are in the middle of a pandemic. Everybody wants this pandemic to end. We know that masking, distancing, vaccinations are the three big um, acts that will get us through this pandemic. Why can't the government show leadership and do that? I don't <laughs> Good question. Understand. Yeah, Good. and I would, I would also suggest that you know we we talk a lot a lot about you know mandating it in in long term care, and I think that yes, we had you know obviously the outbreaks were in long term care, but you know um, you know the star on the weekend talked about the deaths in you know in hospital um, from hospital. Um, people who got it in hospital. I mean, I think we really have to look at the entire health system. I don't think it should be just picking on on long-term care, frankly. Yeah, but most of the deaths were in in long-term care. I mean, yesterday, apparently, the chief medical officer of health, Dr. Moore, said maybe it'll be mandated. But, you know, I, I just, you know, when I, when I, why is this the last thing? Yes. <laughs> Why? And it shouldn't be the last thing. Um, uh, we also know that with vaccination, uh, older adults sometimes don't have the, the same immune response to vaccines. So, in fact, they may, even though fully vaccinated, be far more vulnerable um, to catching it and then catching it with like severe um, outcomes. So it's it absolutely should be on top of the government's list of priorities. And uh, I do not understand why we have so frequently been so slow to act to, to ensure that we are doing the right thing when it comes to providing care for those who live in long-term care, for those who work in long-term care collectively, and also those who need to visit. Because quite frankly, the, um, the idea of locking people down in the way that we did for the past year was so harmful in so many ways to so many people. And I fear that we are going to be reliving um, that for years to come. It's actually our shame. It's, it's shameful what we did. You know, the, the one of the arguments is always, well, we're short-staffed to begin with, and if we make it mandatory, then we'll really, really be up a creek. Uh, does that hold water for us? Well, there has been a uh, shortage of mainly PSWs in our long-term care home for a very long time. I mean, I wrote in the, in the legislature in 2007 to say, make PSW job good job, give them full-time work, decent pay, a few benefits and a caseload that a human being can handle. And a lot of them that are trained to be PSW, that are good at what they do, will come back to the field. None of this has been done. Um, is there a risk that more will stay home if we mandate the vaccine? Yes, there's a risk, but there's also a risk that they will stay home if they get the virus or if they have an exposure and have to uh, self-quarantine. So there are risks in everything. But we know that to get to the other side of this pandemic, we need to wear a mask, we need to distance, we need to be vaccinated. This is the road that brings us to the other side of this pandemic. And for healthcare workers, it means that all of them needs to be vaccinated. We are beginning to run out of time. So uh, a last question going around the table is, okay, so what do we, what do you do to keep this or to make this, uh, uh, you know, an important issue with priority? As I said, I am very pessimistic. I feel like it is off the table. Uh, let's begin with Jane. 
Well, I think that it's up to the public to do, you know, to keep on their, you know, their new MPs, um, to, to bring it to them to say that this is a very important issue. We still have to, to watch. Um, you know, and I agree, unfortunately, in the past, we've had, you know, flare ups of different issues in long term care and everyone says, Oh, we're going to fix it. We're going to fix it. But as soon as it, you know, sort of, um, you know, they've said that, then it, it, nothing ever happens. So I think that it, it, it's got to be kept in the public eye, and, and people have to demand for their MPs that they're going to have to move this forward. Dr. Daly? Uh, I do think that uh, people do have to keep it on the public agenda, so it, it needs to be um, on the pages of newspapers, on radio shows. It needs to be something where there are town halls and um, people are talking with their MPs and their MPPs. Um, I would also say that we can't forget that if we create decent working conditions, if we create a living wage, we can attract people to do good work. So I think that part of the problem that we have is that in not fixing uh, long-term care um, as a, a workplace as well. And Florence, last word to you. Well, I would say I have a little bit of hope. Ontarians are good people. They saw what happened in our long-term care homes during the pandemic and and want change. Uh, don't get me wrong, I agree with uh, <laughs> Jane and with Dr. Daly that um, it is hard to bring long-term care to the front um, unless something really bad happened. It makes the head of the news, and then we forget about it again. We can't forget about it. It needs change, and that will mean um, that politicians like me have to pass laws and have to bring actions forward so that we improve the care of our, of our loved one in long-term care. It is doable. We have to do it. Hold us, every single politician, accountable for that. Okay, thank you so much, Jane Midas, Dr. Tamara Daly, and France Jelina. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. We are going to take a break. When we come back, we are going to talk about a big development in international affairs. And there's a new pact among the United States, Great Britain, and Australia. Canada is not in on it. The focus of this pact is to uh, basically confront China a little bit. So are chickens coming home to roost because we have a weak China policy? Or is this nothing to worry about. Uh, are we going to lose in intelligence sharing? We'll be uh, drilling down on all of that when we come back. And let me uh, give the numbers to you. Are, are you satisfied? We're going to get likely more of the same in the way we deal with China. Are you good with that? 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. We'll be back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.